for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right. Welcome, welcome. Happy New Year, wherever you are in the world. Great to have you back with us on this live broadcast here at TNT, Today's News Talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Here we go. Two hours of action-packed news and analysis coming up for you. we got a couple of brilliant guests we're going to bring on to the program, and we're going to cover a wide range of topics today uh, internationally. Uh, we're going to be speaking, at least in the first hour, to prominent American anti-war activist Medea Benjamin. She's the founder of the organization Code Pink. She's been very vocal and very active on the situation situation in Gaza. We'll speak to her in the first hour and also find out her perspective on the recent invocation of the genocide convention by the South African government. This just happened a few days ago. Things are moving quite rapidly on that front. We'll speak to her about what she's doing, what her cohort are doing on that front. That'll be a very interesting segment. In the second hour, we're going to speak to American and journalist uh, Sam Husseini, who is also a regular in the State Department's press pool there. We spoke to him in the previous weeks about the Genocide Convention. Remember, he's one of the first people to campaign for this. And in fact, it happened. So we'll speak to Sam. He's really got a really good dial in on this issue. So I'm looking forward to that conversation uh, as well. That'll probably be in the beginning of the second hour. It's a very urgent conversation uh, because politically there are ramifications here. So two great guests on that front and also we'll hear from basil valentine hopefully later in the first hour for his reactions to the medea benjamin interview but also in the second hour we're going to be joined by blake lovewell and what are we going to talk about big moves are afoot in the new year with bitcoin there's a lot of chatter in the market right now you have the etf horizon approaching we have splits coming up in the winter and spring on major cryptocurrencies like bitcoin and ethereum what is that going to mean should we go long on btc or what's going to happen or is it time to buy is it time to sell the outlook for crypto in 2024 blake lovewell is going to join us at the end of the second hour very important especially if you are uh investing or thinking about investing in cryptos uh, we'll get some very good insights from blake lovewell so i'm very much looking forward to that conversation now some big news broke last night actually or yesterday afternoon uh, to be more precise on new year's day now take this for what it's worth ladies and gentlemen israel has announced it's going to do a major withdrawal of troops from the Gaza Strip. Uh, they, they, they say they expect the fighting co to continue through 2024. But this is a huge announcement. And you notice this was not front and center headline news across U.S. cable news media. It was more or less a footnote. You'll find it on some of the mainstream media outlets, uh, certainly on their websites. Al Jazeera ran obviously big on this headline yesterday. That's a big announcement. The timing is interesting and it's not a coincidence. You remember there were back channel discussions between the United States and Israel in the previous weeks. The United States said it could not sustain a long war. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that the US, let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, I wanna to talk to our next guest about this. The U.S. is a co-belligerent in this conflict. They are supplying the bombs. They are supplying the ammunition. Without the bombs, without the ammunition, coming from Uncle Sam, Israel does not have a military operation where they're waging war on the people of Gaza. It would end in a matter of days, in weeks, okay? They would have to basically begin to wind the whole project down, they would have to negotiate, imagine that, with the Palestinian counterparts on some kind of a sustained ceasefire and settlement and peace plan going forward, okay? Now, this is big news. So we'll give you some updates on this as well. And the other thing is the 2024 election's coming, and clearly this is a signal from the White House to Tel Aviv saying, look, we have to make some moves here. So Israel looks like it's made a conciliatory move towards Washington by making this announcement. This is 
uh, placating, if you will, uh, some of the skeptics and the, the increasing skeptical uh, mob in, in the United States, especially young Democratic voters, putting pressure on their uh, elected representatives. The constituency is not happy about what, when you have a hashtag like genocide Joe trending, and that's what's on the placards of these anti-war protests. I, I would say the White House have a slight problem going into the 2024 election. So Joe Biden is effectively being bracketed in much the same way that George W. Bush was bracketed uh, with a very unpopular Iraq war. But Genocide Joe is one of those nicknames uh, that sticks and it can be very hard to shake off. And that's a big problem, I think. It's going to damage the brand of the Democratic Party going forward for a long time. Uh, that's just a reality. So from a foreign policy point of view, trust in a Democratic administration is really no better than trust in a Republican administration. That's caused a lot of anti-war folks on the political left in America to kind of reevaluate their support for the Democratic Party as it stands, unless there's some change in thinking, leadership, change in policy. That's a trend that hemorrhaging of support, that gradual bleeding of support is going to continue. Where would those voters go in 2024? Well, they may opt for alternative parties, some of them. We're talking about the Green Party, Jill Stein. She certainly stepped forward. Uh, unfortunately, there's going to be no respite in the Robert F. Kennedy camp on this issue because he is lock, stock, and barrel in the tank for Israel, unfortunately, RFK Jr. So no hope there, really. And why would that make any major impact? Libertarian Party, you might get some refugees there, but why would that make an impact? Let's say 4% go to the Green Party. Well, in a tight race, the swing stakes, we know what the voter differential was in 2020 and 2016. Very small, in fact, not talking about the popular vote, talking about Michigan. We're talking about Pennsylvania. We're talking about Georgia. We're talking about Nevada. We're talking about Arizona. Okay. We're talking about Wisconsin. We're talking about North Carolina. We're talking about Virginia. These are the key, some of the key swing states that have been tight and very close in the previous presidential elections. Any issue that might move the dial on any of these states that I've just mentioned in a tight race between, let's say, Donald J. Trump on the Republican ticket and either Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or whoever assumes the Democratic uh, nomination after August of 2024. Tight race, any of those swing states, this is a major game changer potentially for the final result in the Electoral College. That's just reality. So this is an important issue, along with many other issues that are going to emerge during the election cycle, number of wedge issues. I'm sure the abortion issue uh, promises to appoint more liberal Supreme Court justices from the Democratic side, etc. All of these are obviously going to play in uh, during the 2024 election. But the Israel issue is now on the map. So Israel's pulling out some of their troops, how much they have sustained uh, losses. A lot of people who've been watching the numbers on this uh, are saying that Israel is massively underreporting their battlefield casualties in Gaza. I would tend to agree with that. Certainly, we've had discussions about that very topic on this program last week and the week before with some of our guests. We'll continue to delve into that and to audit, to interrogate some of these claims made by the IDF uh, as, as a uh, regarding their own deaths and injuries uh, in Gaza and also uh, in southern Lebanon as well. So the numbers, uh, well, well, we'll do we'll do a review on that later in the week. Uh, we have a couple of investigative journalists working on the ground uh, that we've been talking to in the Middle East. They'll be able to enlighten us on that. So, look, what we're going to do right now is take a break with the network TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. On the other side, we're going to connect, hopefully, with our next guest, Medea Benjamin, founder of Code Pink, all coming up in just a few minutes. Stay right there. TNT Radio's Hervoy Morich. Approximately 650,000 Ukrainian men aged 18 to 60 have left Ukraine for Europe since the start of the war. It's a tough spot. If your country is being invaded, uh, that's one thing, and you're a, a male and a citizen. Um, but you know, if, the war, if it's a globalist war, I, I wouldn't want to participate 
in these banker globalist wars and most of them just uh, are pervoy morich on today's news talk radio tnt Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We are freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. We don't rock, rock. we talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for rejoining us. Uh, we're going to uh, hopefully connect our next guest. Uh, we're having some issues on the back end. She's very busy, probably going between engagements right now. We're going to hopefully connect her. Medea Benjamin, founder of the anti-war group in America, Code Pink. Uh, we'll hopefully speak to her very shortly uh, about what's going on in Washington regarding the issue of the Middle East. And as we said before the break, breaking news, this happened just yesterday. Israel says it will pull out thousands of troops, thousands of troops from Gaza. They've come under heavy pressure from the Biden administration who are supplying all the arms uh, for their war. They're effectively underwriting the conflict uh, in Washington. So this looks like something's happening here. This is interesting. So how Israel is uh, framing this uh, in terms of their messaging is they say they're going now to move to a low intensity war. So a long drawn out quote, low intensity war. So the whole genocide uh, shockwave, it looks like it's working. It looks like there's progress being made on that front. Uh, certainly this is a development that's come over the new year. I think there was probably some kind of implicit agreement uh, between uh, the Israelis and Washington that they will make a move, or at least some kind of announcement, and that would be done before the new year. This is what we've heard from a number of people who have been keeping a close tab on this issue. So the Israeli military has begrudgingly announced uh, that it would be withdrawing thousands of soldiers from the besieged Gaza Strip in the first significant pullback of troops since the war began there in October. Their military operation against the Palestinians began on October 13th, so there was a slight lull uh, between October 7th, that fateful day that will live in infamy, uh, and the actual uh, unleashing of the IDF's carpet bombing campaign against the people living in the Gaza Strip. So they've come under heavy pressure, and it looks like a low, a quote, low-intensity conflict that they're announcing will net fewer civilian casualties. Uh, I don't know what to make of this statement, but I'm just looking at the calendar right now. So we had the whole of October, or half of October, the whole of November, the whole of December. The, the numbers now have eclipsed, and this is the other thing that's been pushed off of the headlines, the number, the numbers of dead Palestinians uh, over the weekend has eclipsed the uh, the 30,000 persons mark, 30,000 dead Palestinians included in there, uh, 12,000, approximately 12,000 children, and uh, probably somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 5,000 women or something like this. 
and the rest, uh, young men, if you want to include the, quote, Hamas militants in their uh, total numbers, you're probably looking at uh, someone like 33,000 or something like this. So no one knows for sure. But in the southern city of Khan Yunis and refugee camp, one of the poorest parts of Gaza, if that's even imaginable, uh, fighting has continued. And Israel was still pressing on with its military operation, increasingly unpopular inside Israel. They are sustaining losses. They're now admitting that they've lost five 500 plus IDF soldiers since the fighting has began. And the people we've spoken to about this, uh, like Leila Hatoum, investigative journalist based in Lebanon, uh, and also Hala Jaber and others who've been on the program, uh, the indication we've been given from the beginning is that Israel will massively underreport their casualties for obvious reasons most countries do these days. But uh, how could you gauge the uh, correct number? Um, perhaps multiples of four, some say as high as multiples of eight. So they're downplaying uh, their losses by a factor of four or a factor of eight, depending on who you're talking to. And certainly we've had this discussion with the amount of disabled tanks on the Israeli side. Uh, you're talking in now the hundreds of military vehicles uh, plus uh, heavy fighting street to street now and so forth. It's likely that the true number of uh, Israeli soldiers killed probably quite easily is going to eclipse uh, the 1,000 mark. The estimate I put to them uh, was to around 2,000. Uh, that was said to me is probably fairly fair fairly accurate uh, in terms of injured uh, you can probably go a factor of six to eight on deaths to injuries um, so number of injured you're talking about probably over 10,000 so you, that's significant if you think about the fact this is a very small country and everybody knows everybody Israel's one big village there is not a family that is not affected by this inside Israel proper uh, somebody in their family, somebody they know is killed or severely injured uh, in the war against Gaza. So this is going to have a political effect inside Israel. So outside Israel, the United States is putting us pressure on. This is this is a bad moment for the Netanyahu regime because they don't have the full confidence of the United States anymore. And worse, it's pretty clear that the United States has put applied pressure on them and they've had to relent at least on paper how this is going to actually play out in the ground really is anybody's guess and that's a big problem so we don't know for sure how this is going to play out on the ground and uh, they could easily ramp up you know after things calm down here then maybe the global media will will shift focus to uh ukraine for instance or over to taiwan china is definitely uh, upping the ante in terms of some of their statements there that's going to be a dog whistle for the war hawks in washington the mainstream media all too happily move the spotlight away from israel and put it onto the pacific theater for instance or back onto ukraine as russia looks like they're going to make significant moves now uh down towards odessa this is just based on what we've seen over the weekend one of the biggest missile strikes by the Russian Federation against Ukrainian targets uh, over Friday last week, late last week, and then into the weekend. And so that means that there's going to be a lot of intense pressure. What you got to look out for is a lot of intense pressure from the collective West uh, to somehow slow down or stop Russia from making any significant moves on Odessa, because that's the end. When that happens, you're talking about the coastline of Ukraine, the remaining coastline of Ukraine, access to the Black Sea. And so this is all this is all happening in real time right now. We're gonna bring you updates, of course, over the course of this week. But for right now, let's go to a break here with TNT, today's news talk, and we'll try to connect our guest on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host, stay right there. Sometimes life can be overwhelming and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, 
reminders of things that make you feel strong. Some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for rejoining us on this live broadcast. We're still in the first hour. We've got a very important story we need to cover right now. We're going to bring on to the program a special guest. Uh, she is the founder of prominent anti-war organization Code Pink in the United States. She's very visible on media and on Capitol Hill. Her name is Medea Benjamin. She's joining us on the live link right now. Medea, thank you for joining us on TNT. Nice to be with you, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming. And there's a lot going on, Medea. I know you've been very busy uh, in you, what you've been doing. Uh, give us an update on where things are at right now in Washington with regards to the Gaza crisis. And we've just seen this incredible announcement, Israel announcing they're withdrawing thousands of troops uh, temporarily and moving to a low-intensity conflict. There's, it's well known that there's definitely problems in the Biden administration with their support for Israel since October 7th. How is this panning out right now on the American scene, Medea? Well, in terms of Congress, they've been on vacation. And while they have been in their districts, they have been bombarded with uh, protests everywhere they go. And they will be coming back to D.C. Uh, in the coming, well, the week of, of January 8th. So we are preparing to greet them there with lots of people uh, in the halls of Congress saying not only why haven't you called for a ceasefire, because most of them haven't, but also the issue of the $14 billion more to Israel that the Biden administration has asked for. And during this holiday break, they've gone around Congress to send millions and millions of uh, more munitions to Israel without congressional approval. And then there will be a vote coming up on this. And so uh, we are going to be there saying, how can you even consider sending $14 billion more to uh, Israel in the midst of this mass slaughter that's going on? And uh, in terms of opposition, uh, on, in the White House, there is a lot of division, which we are uh, not only reading about in the press in the United States, but we've met with uh, interns from the White House who did their own letters saying, we don't like at all what's going on. Uh, we've met with people from the State Department who have resigned over this issue. Uh, there were a thousand employees from the U.S. Agency for International Development that signed a letter calling for a ceasefire. Uh, the, in, the staff within Congress have written their own letters and actually did their own press conference. So uh, the opposition to Biden's policies are coming from uh, the grassroots and inside. But in despite that, you see the administration sticking by Israel and you see the majority of people in Congress continuing to support Israel. So there's a tremendous dis, uh, dysfunction in our government, um, uh, a disjuncture between what the people want. We see in opinion polls, 66% of Americans want a ceasefire. And yet we see Democrats and Republicans, the vast majority, still siding with Israel and wanting to send them more money. How would you explain that gulf, this gap you're talking about of where the public is on this issue and where our congressmen, senators on both parties uh, in Washington are on the issue? What? How do you explain that, that that staunch support for what Israel is doing versus 
what's clearly, as you said, there's a growing grassroots opposition to this policy, this uh, uh, shoulder-to-shoulder relationship that Washington has had. How do you explain this, this gap? Well, the this is not the only issue, but a big issue is the pro-Israel lobby that is so strong in the United States that has been built up over decades and now puts the fear of God into the members of Congress. And not only do they give a lot of money to congressional campaigns, and we have gone around the Congress and put the exact numbers outside their doors to say, you have been sold out to the pro-Israel lobby for X amount of money, and oftentimes that's in the millions. But they fear that if they don't take a position that is pro-Israel, that they will be primaried, meaning that the pro-Israel lobby group will come in and give a lot of money to find an opponent that is suitable and then uh, flood that campaign with millions of dollars. And they have shown their ability to make and break careers. They have taken out sitting members of Congress. They have now said they're going to go after those members of Congress that have called for a ceasefire and they're Uh, saying we're going to put $100 million into opposing them. And so there is a tremendous fear within Congress of coming out and even simply calling for a ceasefire, much less saying we don't want to spend any more of the U.S. tax dollars on Israel. And this so distorts our political system. There are members of Congress uh, that have called APAC a cancer on our democracy, uh, the uh, the very popular AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has called them a racist group that disproportionately targets uh, members of color. And uh, they have really uh, distorted this whole issue uh, so much so that it just feels like we're hitting our heads against a brick wall when we go into these offices And we say to them, we feel that you are responding to APAC rather than your constituents. Some of them even have an Israeli flag outside of their door. We say, why do you have the flag of a foreign country outside your door? And they swear to us, well, this has nothing to do with uh, the lobby group called APAC. This has nothing to do with uh, money and campaigns. This is just the position that uh, our boss or or directly uh, the, the senator or the congressperson holds. And yet we say, well, then we can't understand it because this person doesn't have a heart, doesn't have a sense of humanity, doesn't look at the news and see civilians under the rubble um, being crushed, an entire society being crushed. Then what would explain that if not this lobby group? And, you know, they have an answer saying, well, I've been to Israel and I've talked to the Israeli government and I've seen uh, the uh, need for this Jewish state to defend itself. And we say to them, well, you've probably been to uh, to Israel on a all expenses paid trip by these very lobby groups who show you what they want you to see. Have you gone to Hebron? Have you spoken to people in the West Bank who have been targeted by Israel? Have you gone through a checkpoint? Uh, have you gone to Gaza? And of course, for most of them, it's the answer is is no, if they'll admit it. And so where, where can, if, if, if the constituencies are having trouble getting through to their elected representatives through normal channels, uh, where else can they go to redress these grievances? Is it going to be the ballot box? So how significant is this issue in the upcoming 2024 election cycle in the United States, uh, we do see young people. We see the Muslim American vote. We see the Arab American vote, places like Dearborn, Michigan, Detroit, uh, big populations of Middle Eastern descent. They look like they are uh, really against the administration right now. Um, will they withhold their vote? Can they go? Are they going to an alternative Green Party vote, for instance? How could this issue, because it wouldn't take much to, to swing the uh, alarm bells, if you will, in the White House on this. How do you see that this issue shaping at all if it, uh, the 2024 election? Well, it's hard to tell until we're closer to the election. But when you look at it right now, even the newspaper, The Hill, which is uh, the newspaper that uh, uh, covers 
uh, the, the, the politics in Washington, D.C., just put out an article saying five things that could sink Biden's uh, bid for another presidency. And number four was this issue of Israel. And among my friends and my bubble that I'm part of, they say, what do you mean number four? That should be number one. Uh, and there are a lot of people in these communities that you've mentioned, the Muslim community, the, uh, the young voters, but also progressive Jews and many people in the black community who said, you know, I will not vote for Biden. But this puts us in a tremendous bind because most of these people are terrified of Trump being the president. And we also know that Green Party candidate, as much as we love them, are not going to win. Independent candidates like Cornell West, as much as I adore him, are not going to win. Uh, so we're in a mess, a big hot mess in the United States where our political system is so dysfunctional. And putting this issue of Israel aside, the majority of people do not want either Biden or Trump. So how did we end up with these two old white guys who have terrible policies on so many issues we care about? And that is what's considered our choice in the, quote, greatest democracy in the world. Something is terribly wrong in the United States right now. So, yeah, uh, I think a lot of people are going to agree with you on that, uh, Medea. Um, but, you know, how significant is this that the the latest appropriations for uh, military aid uh, going to Israel is being gone through the executive branch trying to bypass Congress? Is that a signal that this is becoming a liability, this issue, um, despite their loyalty to the lobby, as you uh, laid out earlier, that this is going to be a liability? But also the talking point, we hear this a lot. Maybe you can comment on this, Medea. They say Washington's like, well, we support Israel and to do what they're going to do what they're going to do, and we support them like it's some kind of distant uh, remote issue for Washington when, in fact, we have leading Israeli defense former heads of defense and intelligence in Israel saying, without U.S. bombs, without U.S. ammunition, this would be over in a matter of weeks. How do you how do you square this uh, gap in what they're saying about the Washington's role in this war and the reality? Well, yes. And then on top of this, you have comments by President Biden that actually uh, mention that Israel is doing indiscriminate bombing, which, which means it is bombing uh, uh, so many civilians. Uh, and you have uh, people in the White House who are saying, you know, we want Israel to stop killing so many people. And maybe the strategy of Israel is to finally start listening, but still it's going to keep the bombing going. And uh, as you said, the White House is now bypassing Congress, but this is going to come up in Congress very soon because the administration in their, quote, wisdom has thrown a package together that includes $60 billion to keep the war in Ukraine going, $14 billion to keep the war in, uh, in Gaza going, uh, money then to antagonize China by uh, giving more uh, weapons and uh, in the um, Indo-Pacific, particularly around Taiwan, and then uh, throwing in money for uh, dis uh, disrupting even further the ability of people to seek asylum in the United States at our Mexico border uh, to try to get the Republican support. So it's a package that quote, has something for everyone and uh, is a mess for uh, the rest of us who look at this in, in horror. Um, so Congress is trying to figure out, do we separate this money out and just vote on the Israel money? And then if you had asked me two months ago, uh, would there be anybody voting against money for Israel? I would say maybe 10 members of Congress. But in the last two months, things are changing very much. And while we don't hear many people saying, I'm going to vote against money to Israel, um, we are starting to see those cracks. Not quick enough for our, uh, most of us, but for example, there is a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, uh, Joaquin Castro, who is not known as a very leftist member. And he has come out and said he won't vote for mo more money for uh, offensive weapons to Israel. 
And um, there are some members in the Senate who are trying to put conditions on this money. Now, for us, this is ridiculous. We say, why conditions? Just say, don't send them any more money. Uh, but at least there is talk. And the conditions include things like stopping the indiscriminate bombing, stopping the support for the settlers, uh, and uh, getting serious about a solution. Now, you know, some of us will shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, um, that all sounds well and good, but Israel's not going to listen. Uh, and I would say this amendment is not going to go through Congress. They probably won't even get a vote on it. And in some ways, it's a pretext for those senators um, to be able to say, well, I tried to get some conditions in there. I couldn't get them, so I'm going to go ahead and vote for the package. In any case, what I'm saying is that um, the White House isn't able, isn't going to be able to continue to bypass Congress as it has been doing during this break. They're going to have to get this squarely from Congress. Congress is going to have to vote, and everybody is going to see which way each of them votes on this. So you, yeah, that's an interesting uh, thing you, you're bringing up there because before Christmas in the fall, the ouster of uh, Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the 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 impetus for this was our, uh, uh, financial support for an unpopular war in Ukraine. That that's what started that whole avalanche on the Republican side, and maybe they didn't get the the, the result they were looking for in the new speaker. That aside, um, that's still on principle. What could speak to that? The Republicans who opposed the Ukrainian war, but yet have immediately pivoted to support another war in the Middle East. It, um, yeah, speaks, it, yeah. You know, how do I rationalize this? I feel that it's totally irrational. I don't understand it. Um, but there, we, we do have to recognize that uh, both the Democrats and Republicans in the United States are overwhelmingly hawkish. They're overwhelmingly pro-war. We talked about the pro-Israel lobby. We haven't talked about the pro-arms, the weapons are, uh, lobby. And that is huge. That military industrial complex is enormous. And they have more lobbyists in Congress than there are members of Congress. So that's another important factor in all of this. Uh, they, the the budget that uh, just passed uh, is over a trillion dollars going to military slash security related issues. And most of that money goes to enormously uh, wealthy, profitable companies. And the revolving door in the United States is worse than ever, where people go from the Pentagon and Congress into uh, the weapons industry itself, uh, like the Secretary of Defense, who came from being on the board of Raytheon. Uh, so that is uh, another factor that we have to understand, the pro-war, the pro-military sense of our Congress. And more and more, there are members of Congress who are coming from the military directly, and they use it as a selling point in their campaigns. I served my country. You know, in horrible wars, we should have never been in, like in Iraq, um, but it's a selling point here. So um, that's one factor to recognize. Both the parties are very pro-war. There is a faction of the Republican Party, the extreme right of the Republican Party called the Freedom Caucus that has been opposed to sending more money into the war in Ukraine. We'd like to see the U.S. pull out of that, saying that's a European war. It's not our war. Um, we'll let them figure it out. And we're in favor of a ceasefire. Yet we couldn't find a Democrat to take that position uh, even though you would think that would be the position of progressive Democrats. On that issue, they were willing to follow the Biden administration. Uh, but uh, so that's why the Biden, uh, the White House um, threw in the Israel money in with the Ukraine money because they were desperate to get that Ukraine money through. And they thought, okay, uh, if we put the money for Israel in, then these right-wing Republicans will be in favor of that too. So how do I explain it? I don't, but it, the fact is that there are a number of right-wing Republicans who are against funding the war in Ukraine, but are funding are for funding the war in Israel. 
Yeah, this is a really difficult uh, Gordian knot uh, that's hard to untie right now in Washington. Now, we got a couple of minutes left. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is something you tweeted about uh, over the last couple of days, and that is tell us the significance of what South Africa has done in invoking the Genocide Convention, and can this be a legal platform or a legal segue to take direct action in accordance with all the conventions and treaties that the United States has ratified on war crimes and even the genocide convention itself but uh, explain to us the importance of this and how this can uh, be effective in the political arena well we think this is a huge breakthrough and we were are so thankful to the government of south africa this case will be coming up very shortly january 11th and 12th we hope there will be a ruling uh, that will say that indeed Israel must stop its attacks. And in the meantime, what we are doing here in the United States is going around to embassies that we will be starting this week and saying to them, please sign on to support this South African lawsuit. There's something called a declaration of intervention, uh, which will put other countries as part of this lawsuit. And we're saying in the US, look, our government does not represent us. We are pleading with your government um, to represent this global call uh, for um, holding Israel accountable. So we are uh, very hopeful that this is a possible avenue uh, that can restrain Israel. And we're hoping that there uh, will be by January 11th, and if not afterwards, more countries that sign on to this. Yeah, because it really only took uh, one country to push the boat out on this. And uh, thankfully, that has happened. And uh, we're big thank you to you know all the people that have been campaigning for this uh, on on social media uh, with petitions and so forth. There's been a lot of activity around this. Uh, it's by no means a solution to all the problems with this situation, but it uh, certainly provides, I think, a legal platform, and it has done in the past in order to, for instance, uh, officers in the Israeli army, politicians in Israel. Even people in the U.S. that have been supporting it or providing material support, everybody, theoretically anyway, uh, it, it comes under a, a sort of legal umbrella on this and can be held accountable if there are, if there's a political will, if there are judges and judiciary bodies ready to accept those uh, filings for potential indictments, arrests. We've seen it in the past with Augusta Pinochet. We've seen it with Ariel Sharon internationally. So these can be effective. And while they might not stop the conflict itself, they can uh, help in the overall effort. That's uh, what their proponents are saying. Uh, so I don't know if you have any comments on other things that can be done or that have been done in the past to get accountability on what are, let's let's face it, the most some of the most egregious war crimes we've ever witnessed uh, on live on TV in the modern era. But uh, go ahead, Medea. Well, I think we have to use every tool in the toolbox. And uh, I, I think it would be great if there were a call for an uh, arms embargo on selling or giving, as in the case of the U.S. weapons to Israel. There is the whole boycott uh, sanctions and divestment movement that has uh, uh, gotten a lot, a lot of more uh, uh, participation during these last two months, um, shaming companies that are working with Israel. Um, there is uh, the issue of continuing to put pressure on the politicians globally, bringing this back to the General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, there are so many ways to continue the pressure and uh, one uh, hopeful sign in this coming year is that there is such a massive global movement that is determined uh, to hold their own politicians accountable. And I think this will only grow as uh, the days go by and uh, we try to uh, stop Israel no matter what it says it's going to be doing and changing its tactics. Um, we know that not only do we have to stop it immediately, all of this bombing and the starvation, but we have to find a solution. And we hope that the global community doesn't turn away uh, when the bombing stops, but really takes this as an imperative 
uh, to go for either a serious two-state solution or a one democratic state. Certainly, yeah. Do do um, what are what are your thoughts on on that? Because that's always been one of the hangups, isn't it? Uh, with you know mounting negotiations and having international efforts, but multilateral efforts to try to get a peaceful solution in there. Um, do, what 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 is the Biden White House's position on a two state solution, a one state solution, and how divisive is that issue in Washington? Or are they, are they just using this as an excuse to kick the can down the road? What what are your thoughts on? I know this is a difficult one, but do you have any observations that you've learned on this? Oh, yes, that for years it's been so easy for politicians to say, I support a two-state solution. And, you know, that's what they just keep saying and saying while they continue to uh, support <clears throat> Israel's uh, incredible uh, apartheid state and oppression of Palestinians, whether they live in uh, Israel proper or they're in the West Bank or they're in Gaza. And uh, so it, it has been meaningless for years. And yet, you see that in the meantime, uh, the settler movement has become so enormous with hundreds of thousands of settlers and settlements, hundreds of settlements uh, that are now uh, creating Swiss cheese of the West Bank and making it impossible to have a Palestinian state. Um, yet the politicians continue to say, oh, yes, two states, two states. So. I don't see how you can have two states anymore. I don't see how the Israelis are ever going to uh, evict hundreds of thousands of settlers. Um, and so I see that the only solution is a one state solution. You know, I'm not in favor of religious states, whether they're Islamic states or Jewish states. I don't think in this day and age we should be having religious states. I think um, there should be secular states and people should all be treated as equal. So. I, as a Jew, uh, have no problem saying I think there should be one democratic secular state. Um, uh, it, it's hard to envision at this point, but, you know, things were uh, difficult like this in countries all over. We had our own civil war in the United States where uh, hundreds of thousands of people died and uh, didn't think we would be able to come back together as one state. And certainly we have. So that is is my hope. Yeah, and I, and I think from an American perspective, certainly what's acceptable for Americans in terms of equal rights and a bill of rights and a constitution, everybody treated equally and fairly and non-segregated under the law, you'd think that's what Americans would be espousing internationally. Um, so that's the, the the part that's so uh, confounding in all of this is that we we advocate for democracy and uh, all of these you know democratic norms uh, in the rules based international order. But when it comes to Israel and Palestine, uh, everyone suspends all those principles and are advocating basically for uh, a kind of an ethno state or as you said a religious state. That wouldn't be acceptable in in the U.S. or any other G7 country, but for some reason it is there. That's a big problem, and I, I think I, I'd like to see that addressed in the conversation. So, there, and there are more people talking about uh, a one-state solution more than I think ten or fifteen years ago. Would you say this is is, is increasing in the conversation? Well, that's uh, true because people are seeing the reality on the ground. They're seeing that in the last decade, uh, so many more settlers have come in and vicious settlers. Um, they're seeing that so many more um, settlements uh, have been created and wondering, well, how could you ever turn this into a state? Uh, and certainly now when you see what the Israelis have done to Gaza, and that the solution for a number of Israelis, whether they will say it or not, is to make it impossible to live in Gaza so that the people living there will be uh, will be wanting to leave, whether it's going to Egypt or going to other countries. Um, I think uh, rather than that would be a solution where uh, the people in Gaza would be able to live in the West Bank, would be able to live in other parts of Israel. Um, so, uh, as we look forward to seeing how do we, uh, how is this problem ever going to be solved? I think it has to be solved with 
uh, Palestinians being able to live in any part of Israel that they want to live in. Uh, let's remember that before the creation of Israel, uh, Jews and Arabs live side by side in many, many countries in uh, peacefully, including in Palestine. And I think they could do so again in the future. Right now, uh, again, I say this as a Jew, I think Israel is uh, the most dangerous place in the world for Jews to be living right now. And it is only getting more dangerous and anti-Semitism is only growing day by day as we see these callous, horrific, barbaric actions on the part of the Israeli state. And that's also another point is that uh, th this has been the total brand of uh, the, the long running Netanyahu regime, if you will, uh, has been, oh, we're going to provide security, come to Israel, nowhere else in the world is safe. We're, uh, this is the only safe place for Jews in the world. That's always been the, the, the sort of battle cry, the campaign cry for Benjamin Netanyahu. But didn't all that shatter on October 7th, and it's getting worse by the day. So what, what about uh, the uh, sustainability, if you will, of this Likud government in Israel um, from inside Israeli politics. Do you have a final thoughts on that? Do you have any indication from inside Israel as to what's happening internally, politically there? Are people uh, coming to see the light on this issue a little bit? What do you think? Unfortunately, the Israeli media is not giving a balanced view and is not showing the devastation that is happening in Gaza. I think if people inside Israel were able to really see what's going on, uh, many more of them would be horrified. Uh, I, I think that uh, we outside of Israel are seeing more about what's happening uh, than the Israelis are. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is very unpopular, and we saw the huge demonstrations against him uh, that were happening up until October 7th. Uh, for this period, uh, there are uh, many Israelis who are reluctantly supporting Netanyahu, uh, but this will change as well. And I think the Israeli government is extremely fragile, especially with these uh, right-wing uh, 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 people that are in the cabinet that are, are so determined to destroy Gaza um, that this cannot hold up as a government. And we will see major changes within the Israeli government as well. Uh, none of this is, is sustainable. It's not sustainable in Israel. It's not sustainable what's happening in Gaza. Certainly, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a genocide. It's a catastrophe. But on the world scale, it's not sustainable either. We can't have countries that call themselves democratic, whether they're in Europe or in the United States, um, continue to have uh, this hypocritic, uh, hypo uh, be such hypocrites when it comes to Israel. That will have to change as well. Definitely the conversation is shifting radically uh, into the new year on this. So uh, we hope this is going to net some positive change overall. Anyway, we're going to keep our a close eye on the situation. Medea Benjamin, founder of Code Pink, we really appreciate your time on TNT this week. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Bye-bye. And there she goes, ladies and gentlemen, that is Medea Benjamin. Follow her on social media for updates, uh, especially on the X Twitter platform. You'll see the videos uh, that she's posting and what's going on on the anti-war activist front in the United States. We'll keep an eye on that issue and much more. Right now, let's go to the break. And on the other side, we're going to connect American journalist Sam Husseini, who's got a lot to say about the genocide convention. All this and more coming up. Stay right there.